0: Welcome to STEM Talk. Welcome to STEM Talk, where we introduce you to fascinating people who passionately inhabit the scientific and technical frontiers of our society. Hello, I'm your host, Don Carnegis, and joining me to introduce today's podcast is the man behind the curtain, Dr. Ken Ford, IHMC's director and chairman of the Double Secret Selection Committee. That selects all the guests who appear on STEM Talk.
1: Hi, Don. Great to be here today.
0: So, our guest today is Dr. Dixon de Pommier, a microbiologist and ecologist who is the Emeritus Professor of Public and Environmental Health at Columbia University. Our interview with Dick was so fascinating and ran so long that we actually divided it into two episodes. For nearly 30 years, he conducted research on intracellular parasitism and taught courses on parasitic diseases, medical ecology, and ecology. In 1999, Dixon and his students came up with the idea of raising crops in tall buildings. When his book, The Vertical Farm, Feeding the World in the 21st Century, came out in 2010, there were no vertical farms in the world. And today, there are commercial vertical farms not only throughout the U.S., but also in Korea, Japan, China, England, Scotland, the Netherlands, France, Russia, Dubai, Canada, and a host of other countries.
1: Dick is the author of five books, including People, Parasites, and Plowshares. His most recent book, Waste Deep in Water, is a memoir of his lifelong love of fly fishing.
0: But before we get to today's interview with Dick, we have some housekeeping to take care of. First, we really appreciate all of you who have subscribed to STEM Talk, and we are especially appreciative of all the wonderful five-star reviews. As always, the Double Secret Selection Committee has been continually and carefully reviewing iTunes, Google, Stitcher, and other podcast apps for the wittiest and most lavishly praise-filled reviews to read on STEM Talk. As always, if you hear your review read on STEM Talk, just contact us at stemtalk at IHMC.us to claim your official STEM Talk t-shirt.
1: Today our winning review was posted by someone who goes by the moniker Doc Hercules. The review reads, I discovered your podcast about two years ago and have since listened to every single episode, some of them two and three times. I only wish that I had found this podcast when I was an undergrad, but I digress as that was in the 80s. I am a physician with a strong interest in STEM and often incorporate episodes as a starting point for discussion with my students. The passion, breadth, and depth of the episodes often inspires students to explore and then we are down the rabbit hole. I love it. Personally, episode 90 struck a chord with me from Don's comment about being a professional babysitter and seeing someone totally dedicated to his craft of hockey to Ken's musing on reinventing himself. I did that very thing in 2009 and set myself to become the best physician that I possibly could. I couldn't be happier with the results and continue to push forward and am starting now a master's at Johns Hopkins. Thanks for the inspiration and validation. You guys rock.
0: Well, thank you, Doc Hercules. You rock. And thank you to all of our other STEM Talk listeners who've helped STEM Talk become such a great success.
1: Okay, and now on to today's interview with Dixon Depommier. STEM Talk.
0: STEM Talk. STEM 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 talk. Talk. STEM Talk. Hi, welcome to STEM Talk. I'm your host, Don Carnegis, and joining us today is Dixon Depamier. Dixon, welcome to the podcast.
1: <laughs> Thank you. It's an honor to be here.
0: And also joining us is Ken Ford.
1: Hi, Don, and hello, Dixon. Hey, Ken. First of all, I want to say that we're great fans of your podcast, This Week in Parasitism. Oh, terrific. And also, uh, This Week in Virology. uh, I mostly listen to This Week in Parasitism, otherwise known as TWIP. Right. These two podcasts that you've been co-hosting are uh, very high quality with your colleagues, and you were a very early adopter of science-based podcasts. I understand that you started in 2008 and have something like five or 600 episodes under your belt. How did you get involved in this?
2: (laughs) Well, it wasn't my idea. (laughs) If you asked me how I got involved, I'd have to defer to Vincent Racaniello, my colleague who was at that time uh, an associate professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Columbia at the medical school. And he got the urge to establish a podcast Mm. and he came over to my office and asked me out of the blue whether I'd be happy to co-host it with him. And I said, sure, what's the subject? And he said, virology. And I said, no, thanks. <laughs> I don't know anything about <laughs> virology. <laughs> I, yeah, I know a little bit, but I'm, I'm not an expert at that. And certainly, uh, as you've listened to the Twiv episode since then, you realize that I'm still not an expert at virology, but picked up a lot along the way. And um, he said, no, you're a good communicator and you teach well. And so, therefore, I want you on this podcast with me. And so we sat down in my office. He set up a microphone and he had a recorder with him, and he had all the equipment necessary to make a podcast, and we had a two-hour session on loss of fever, which mm-hmm. was the only virus that I could possibly talk about at that point, because I knew the discoverer of the virus, who was colleagues of mine at the School of Public Health, and... Um, as we finished the episode, he looked down and said, you know what? I think I forgot to turn on the recorder. no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. We did it again, and I thought we did a better job the second time.
1: <laughs> well, clearly his judgment in uh, asking you to co-host was solid.
2: I will pass that on to him. Sometimes <laughs> he needs to be reminded of that. <laughs>
0: It's kind of like how I got you know, into podcast, podcasting. When you
2: <laughs> when you podcast that long with someone, it's eventual that you're going to run into some glitches, and we have, and uh, they've all been resolved, and it's it's been a lot of fun. It's it's been a wonderful journey. In fact, of uh, of listening to four experts talk about a paper, for instance, that's come out in the press or just recently been released, and. Uh, to hear them machinate over the meanings of these small minutiae of details that can actually explode into large things like an Ebola outbreak is really sobering.
0: Well, that's fantastic. So I understand that you were born in New Orleans, which is a great city that Ken and I are quite familiar with and also happens to actually not be too far from us here in Pensacola. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> your parents, however, moved across the country to San Francisco when you were just one year old. And as a youngster in California, you were interested in science, but I understand that you didn't call it that. You just like to collect polywogs, which, man, that brings back memories. <laughs> <laughs> Those are cool. <laughs> exactly. And grasshoppers. Spiders, snakes,
2: et cetera. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and dragonflies and such. And so is it true that your mother, unlike a lot of mothers, encouraged you to bring your spiders and toads and bugs that you would find?
2: Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, she actually set aside jars and cleaned them out and, you know, said, now why don't you try this one and see what you can catch? That's cool.
1: You won the mom lottery on that (laughs) respect. When when you were 11, you moved across the country uh, again, this time to New Jersey. What precipitated that? How did that work out?
2: Well, I got tired of California, but no, that's not true. (laughs) My father was uh, employed by a steamship company, and the name of it was Moore and McCormick uh, Partners in Crime, so to speak. And they had three offices. One was in New York, the home office. Uh, One was in San Francisco, and one was in New Orleans. And this was As you must realize, this was during the Second World War as it began, basically. Their ships traveled between the United States mostly and Central and South America, and in South America mostly to Brazil. And from Brazil, they used to take back large quantities of uncured rubber that were collected from the trees down there so they could turn them into tires. Well, as you know, during the Second World War, natural rubber products became rare. The trade routes became compromised with German and Japanese submarines and uh, synthetic rubber had been discovered. The patent had run out, no kidding. Uh, It was discovered at the University of Notre Dame, which is ironic because that's where I ended up uh, for my PhD. Unfortunately for the university, the patent didn't generate any money until, of course, the patent was not valid any longer, which was in 1937. And after that, of course, the world became a different place, and synthetic rubber took over. The trade routes were no longer necessary. The shipping industry suffered greatly during that uh, conflict. And then afterwards, it slowly began to downgrade its uh, importance in the world, I think. And um, eventually, my father ended up in uh, New York as the chief controller of that organization. And I moved with him, of course, along with my sister and... and, uh, stepmother so that uh, <clears throat> there i was in in new jersey
0: mm-hmm. and you spent your new jersey summers in northern bergen county where they closed the, the muni- municipal swimming pool because of the polio outbreak in the 50s so i understand that you weren't going to let that ruin your summer which is good so you grabbed the <laughs> fishing pole and headed for a river which is something that now you've been doing for nearly 75 years can you talk about true. that day and the start of your love of fishing
2: Oh, I'd be happy to because, uh, first of all, it was an excuse to bond with my father, who loved fishing as a child himself. Of course, he grew up in New Orleans and and was privy to all of the wonderful fishing opportunities down there. He and his two brothers used to go out all the time and collect fish of all kinds and bring them back. And of course, some of them were edible, some were not. And he used to tell me those stories, and I often wanted to go down there with him, but uh, that opportunity didn't arise until much later. So, at any rate, in New Jersey, my father used to go to his church on Sundays, which was the Ordel Reservoir, and sit uh, with his pole propped up on a fork stick and uh, smoke a cigarette or two, and uh, hopefully something would bite at the end of his line. And I, I always wanted to do that, but little kids were not allowed to do that. They just weren't allowed to go in with the adults. So I discovered this little pond in the town over from where I grew up uh, in Bergenfield called Cooper's Pond. It was filled with carp hmm. and no, no game fish, no edible fish, but still, you know. Quarries and the outlet to that was a little stream that had wildlife in it, like crayfish and hellgrammites and toads and pollywogs and all those other things that I was, you know, attracted to. Anyway, so we used to put them in jars and save them next to where we were fishing. And people would come along, and uh, there were adults with their little infants on their strollers, and they would look at uh, all the fish that we had caught, which were all dead next to us, of course. And we shouldn't have done that, but we did and uh, all the things that we trapped in the in the little stream and i i became more attracted to the stream than the pond and that's when i began to deviate from from my father's interest in fishing because uh, he was never attracted to rivers because he was never except for the mississippi river of course <laughs> uh attempted to fish in a river he used to fish in the bayous and so that's still water fishing so, but for me the moving water was just i don't know uh, indescribable. I think it still is. I I don't think I can really put into words uh, what it feels like to step into a moving body of water and experience the sensation of it moving around your legs and how unsure you are with your feet. And you never know what you're stepping on uh, because you can't actually see that. And um, it's a mystery. It's a a big mystery. So I I still, uh, I love it. I haven't given it up. I just got back from a vacation out in Wyoming. I was out there for 20 days, and I spent most of my time waist-deep in water.
1: <laughs> Where were you fishing in Wyoming?
2: I have some favorite places. Uh, they're all—I can talk about them. I'm not hiding them. Um, one of them is in um, a town called Kemmerer. Oh, yes. That's Kate. You know
1: Kemmerer? Oh, yes. Uh, we have, really? uh, we're have. we finishing building a house in Star Valley, which is uh, just north of Kemmerer. I'll be darned. Between Jackson and Kemmerer.
2: Oh, uh, that's a very small world. Isn't it? Yeah. And Pinedale became my favorite place, by the way. I just love that little place.
1: It is nice. Uh,
2: but Kemmerer has a river that, as you know, it's called Ham's Fork, and it comes out yes. of the Bridger Wilderness. And it forms the basis for this reservoir called Viva Norton. And then there's a small stretch of the same river that comes out of the bottom of the dam, goes for about three miles. And then there's another smaller reservoir that Kemmerer uses as its drinking water. Mm-hmm. Now, that lower reservoir contains lots of rainbow trout, and as the summer progresses and as the water warms up, it's a fairly shallow reservoir. Even though it gets cold at night, it doesn't get that cold, and uh, sometimes it exceeds the thermal limit for these fish. And as a result, they discover this cold river that's coming into that lake, and they all migrate up into the river. Well, you can catch fish of enormous sizes. the one guy says he caught a 35 inch rainbow trout i I find that hard to believe because i've never even seen one that big but you know it's possible because it's that kind of a place and um so that's where i spent part of this vacation and then the other part i was up in pinedale fishing on the upper green river and uh i was oh stunned at how beautiful and unspoiled that whole area is and i actually made it up to the source of the green river and Mm. even if i didn't Catch any fish, which I, I did catch a few fish. Uh, I would have gone there anyway. It was just absolutely gorgeous.
1: The green is beautiful. We we normally fish in the Salt River, the oh, Snake yeah. River, and the Gray's River because those are near wow. where our house is.
2: It sounds like a a future is in store for both of us. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite it's quite fun.
1: I understand that we also share our first childhood bait or lure well, for me I I understand it was you too In the very beginning was wonder bread uh Oh it, yeah yeah I didn't Absolutely. like eating it very much but it it's sort of sticky and you can make it <laughs> into a ball and you bet. um and catch things, actually. And, and, yeah, and, and, and,
2: absolutely. You know, you know the, the carp, little baby carp, and then the intermediate-sized carp, they loved it. Uh,
1: yeah, horn pout, uh, you know. Like they, <laughs> 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 yeah, those are the good old days, right? That's right. <laughs> and then you went on to start lifting up rocks and uh, looking for... Crayfish and uh, yeah. all kinds of other goodies. Probably worms played a role. Sure, and, absolutely. And uh, it, it's really neat that you've maintained your interest in fishing all these years, and in the stream itself. You know, uh, you described yeah. it almost poetically. Yeah. But when you're standing in moving water with he your bet. waders on, there's hardly anything better.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And in fact, I'm not sure I mentioned this, but uh, I have a website called The Living River. I don't know if you've gone to it or not, but yes, uh, I looked it's at all it. about stream ecology. And it grew out of, a, of, of my becoming a member of Trout Unlimited. And back in the 70s, the early 70s, and there were four of us that actually formed this adult education course called We All Live Downstream. And that was the name of our course because Three Mile Island had recently happened. And so we, we, were, <laughs> we were poised to tell everybody what the dangers of upsetting natural ecosystems were. And uh, our rivers, of course, were uh, vulnerable to a lot of damage by human activity, including that. We had about eight years worth of that course. And every one of us, except for the amateur medical uh, entomologist, not a medical entomologist, but a stream entomologist, had uh, advanced degrees in areas that related to that subject. So we had geology, we had me, the biologist, uh, we had another guy who was in the history of climate. That was his specialty. So he could talk about the uh, origins of these fish and how they came about after the glaciation retreated. And our friend uh, Pete Jakes used to bring in these little bottles of vodka <laughs> with an insect or two in each bottle, and <laughs> pass them around in the class and say, this is what was on the river last week when we went trout fishing. And and, and we, we had a great time giving that course. And uh, because of that, in 1983, we continued that course for some time. Trout Unlimited awarded the East Jersey Trout Unlimited chapter the Golden Trout Award. And it wasn't for any stream improvement that we had done. It was for educational programs. Mm. So we're quite proud of that.
0: That's very cool. So in high school, you had a biology teacher who recognized your curiosity and played a really important role in shaping your life and career. And I think it's always fantastic when you have teachers like that so early on. Can you tell us a little bit about this teacher and your experience? I'd
2: love to. Oh, I would love to. His name is Dominic Casulli. He lives in Paramus. He's still living and he's living with his wife and uh, daughter taught at Dumont High School for I don't know how many years but I can probably figure it out because I was I think I was 16 at the time I registered for his course in biology and he had just graduated from Rutgers with a master's in education biology that was his first year of teaching and I was one of his first students and uh... I wasn't a great student in high school. I wasn't motivated. I didn't actually have any idea of what I wanted to do. And for that reason, I was busy, you know, maybe not even experimenting, but I, you know, I like, I like playing music. I got involved in the marching band, and I played in our local jazz band and trombone, and I didn't play it well. I must tell you, I did not play it well, but I I enjoyed every note of it. And I wouldn't say everybody else did, but I certainly did. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, how could you not want to play trombone if you're from New Orleans, right? So, Dominic Casulli saw... I don't know what he saw. To be honest with you, I've, I've I've had lunch with him several times in the recent past, and we approach that subject, but he's he's always coming back to the part of where he says are you still getting your reports in late? <laughs> 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 you don't know. Of course, you know, <laughs> I never got them in on time, but I did get them in. <laughs> and he knew that I, I knew a lot of um, naturalist kind of uh, folklore, you might say, about where polywogs live and what kind of spiders like this and that and when those grasshopper season is. And, and trout fishing doesn't hurt with that either because you, you really have to uh, – observant in order to become an expert trout fisherman and I, i would say that there's no such thing as an expert trout fisherman because every time we go it's a different situation and sometimes you catch fish and sometimes you don't but at least you get to enjoy being in nature and so that's basically what i did and he knew that and he encouraged me in ways that almost like an adopted son i would say that that's the relationship we ended up with uh and it was really very um Moving when I look back on that situation, you know, at the time I was not aware that that was going on, but I knew I was attracted to the subject and I knew it was because of him. So he was a good salesperson for the whole subject of biology, a great teacher, never yelled, never punished people for not knowing. He just didn't pay attention to them. If he says, if you're not going to pay attention to me, I'm not going to pay attention to you, but I'm not going to tell you uh, anything more than. Uh, next time we're going to study the valves of the heart or the evolution of um, you know, amphibians or something like that. And if you don't read the book, that's uh, up to you. And so I, I did read the book and I, I did pay attention. And um, he eventually ended up enrolling two of us in a uh, Rutgers-based uh, competition. It was a, an examination that you took. It, was, it actually lasted all day. It was like Uh, Three hours in the morning and the three hours in the afternoon. (laughs) It was grueling, and the questions were way above our heads. We had no knowledge whatsoever, but but at least it gave you some hints as to how to figure them out. You'd have a paragraph, and then a series of questions based on the paragraph. And there must have been two hundred people who took this exam. And for, for the life of me, I still can't figure out why he picked me because I came out like 150th. <laughs> and that should have discouraged me from going into biology, but it just had the opposite effect. It said, boy, do I have a lot to learn. Hmm. And I really, then I became more serious as a student, I think, after that. And my junior and senior year in high school were better than my first two years. And then, and then I went on from there.
0: Well, then you are inspired, and I understand you almost didn't go to college, but then you did, and you did in a very big way. <laughs> so you earned a bachelor's at Fairleigh Dixon University, a master's at Columbia, and a doctorate at Notre Dame. But between getting your bachelor's and master's, you spent a year at a hospital looking through a microscope, trying to identify parasites that patients might have. Sounds really interesting.
2: That was a great experience. That was absolutely terrific. It's, it's actually learning with a purpose because as you learn, there were six of us all together in this uh, diagnostic lab. And the chief technician would, of course, look at the slides, and then she'd save the ones aside for the learners to, to look at. And, and I had actually had a course in college on parasitism. And so um, I'd seen a lot of this in prepared slides, but I'd never actually seen the real thing from a patient. And uh, every day, The stool samples would come into the lab, and they would be prepared, and then in the afternoon, we would all sit and read them. And every single positive slide was looked at by every single technician. It was a great learning experience, absolutely fabulous. And the bottom line there is that when you discovered a parasite that the doctor couldn't possibly have known about unless you told them, they then knew what to do. But before that, they didn't. You know, because the patient would come in, let's say, with diarrheal disease, that could be caused by any number of uh, entities, including viruses and bacteria, fungi, and protozoan parasites like Giardia, which I think a lot of people know about. Uh, And then some really strange ones that almost no one has ever heard about, but still in some countries they're very prevalent. And Since New York is filled with migrants, we used to get stool examples from all kinds of people, mostly from the Caribbean. And those were the days when there was a large influx of people coming from Puerto Rico and Costa Rica and Honduras and places like that. And so we we got a a huge educational experience of learning, A, that there are a lot of parasites out there, and B, that the sanitary conditions are not exactly what you expect them to be because uh, that's how you catch them.
0: It sounds like it. And after completing your PhD, you did a postdoc for three years at Rockefeller University. And I understand there were 12 Nobel Prize winners at Rockefeller when you were there, and most of them would sit down with you and ask questions and become interested in your research. Exactly. So that had to be a really cool experience as such a young postdoc. That was The opposite of what I ever thought,
2: you know, being, um, I wouldn't call it being a genius, but certainly being an accomplished person with recognized international experience in cell biology or chemistry or these sorts of things. You always think of these people as aloof and removed from the real world, and some of them were, but not most of them were not. Most of them were curious. That's what got them their Nobel Prizes to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so their curiosity extended to the newest crop of postdoctoral fellows that came in every year. And there were these long tables and you would sit, you could sit anywhere you wanted. So you could move from table to table, from Nobel laureate to Nobel laureate, so to speak, <laughs> and and listen to their conversations as well as them asking you uh, and and what brings you here and uh, whose lab are you working in and what are you doing and do you, what are your projects and what are some of your approaches that you're using for these? And, and it, was, it was essentially like getting a PhD degree without any of the, uh, worry about defending your thesis (laughs) and (laughs) writing it up. (laughs) I had a great, I had absolutely a wonderful experience there.
1: So what brought you back to Columbia after finishing your postdoc?
2: Well, um, I took a job, um, a job, I I was offered a position at a new medical school called the Medical College of Ohio in Toledo. Now, I'm sure you're aware that sport fishing is a big deal in the Great Lakes, but it's just that. It's an environmental area that doesn't offer too many opportunities for trout uh, fishing. Not that that's the reason why I left Toledo, but um, that was sort of a, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't go and maybe I should. And my wife is originally from Brooklyn and she didn't want to move out of the New York City area and we'd already had one child and, you know, and now we're th- contemplating another one. And, um, uh, you know, but it, it looked like an interesting opportunity. So I, I went. Uh, but unfortunately, as many of uh, your listeners probably know, <laughs> the first opportunity that you get is not necessarily the best one. And this turned out to be that way. It was just not to be. There were some conflicts between myself and the person who invited me, and he was in conflict with a lot of other people, too, so I wasn't alone in this. And. Uh, I don't think it's worth going into the details of why, but I became dissatisfied with several aspects of of being in Toledo, to be honest. And I knew someone who we, uh, both my wife and I were, by the way, we're both technicians in that laboratory back in New York. We met someone who later on became the head of that department, and he remembered me. And I uh, knew he was being considered as the head of the department, so I, I wrote him and asked him whether or not he was hiring And I received an instant reply from him. Dr. Michael Katz wrote back and said, yes, I am hiring. Please come in. I want to talk to you. So that Christmas of my first year in Toledo, we went back to New York on vacation. I sat down with Michael Katz and he said, "Um, well, when can you start? (laughs) 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 And I just looked at him and I said, really? (laughs) He says, yeah. He says, I can offer you a position here as assistant professor in the School of Public Health in the Department of Tropical Medicine. And he says, you can have anything you want in terms of laboratory space, because I don't have a laboratory. Says the one thing you can't have is the chair that I'm sitting in, and it was a lovely chair too. Right? Mm-hmm. I actually wanted that chair for the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> to so, bargain for his chair. <laughs> yeah, well, it didn't. It didn't. It never came to that. And, and he um, was my biggest uh, reason why I moved through the academic uh, ladder, so to speak, of success. He was a great promoter of my career. And I'm eternally grateful for for all of the things that he did for me because under his leadership, I moved from assistant professor to associate professor and then with tenure and then finally as a full professor. And and he had to, of course, speak before these boards as to why I should become promoted. And he always valued my opinions and he valued my teaching and he valued
1: my uh, research. So
2: I have no complaints whatsoever. Mm. I would do it again exactly the same way if I had
1: to do it again. Speaking of teaching, I understand that your experience at Rockefeller cemented your approach to teaching as much or more than it did sort of cement your research outlook. So when you went to Columbia, you were equally engaged in both research and teaching. And you mentioned it briefly, but I wonder if you could tell us a little (laughs) bit about what that approach was. Sure.
2: Well, there were two things. One is that you have to communicate the results that you get in the laboratory if you want to begin a discourse with colleagues. So it doesn't matter what you're working on. You have to communicate it. And if you don't, then it's essentially you haven't done it. So that's, that was their take on everybody going to professional meetings and giving 10-minute or 15-minute presentations on their results. So one of the courses that I took, they offered these to anybody who wanted to take them, of course, and uh, mostly were the postdocs were interested in it more than anybody else. But some of, the, some of the professors there were interested as well. One of them was called How to Give a 10-Minute Talk. And that took 12 weeks (laughs) (laughs) of one hour each, and it was hands-on, and eventually every one of us had to give a 10-minute talk. And if you start to break down a 10-minute talk, there is not much to a 10-minute talk other than here's the title, here's what I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you three things, and then I'll tell you what I told you. And that's how you approach this, because you can't overwhelm your audience with uh, slide after slide after slide. They won't understand anything you've said, unless you don't want them to, of course. (laughs) And there's some people that didn't, but most Mm. of us did want to convey what we had done. So we listened carefully. We each took the advice of the teacher under our belt, so to speak. And we all became adept at giving three uh, 10-minute talks. Three points. Tell them what you're going to say. Tell them tell them what you said, and tell them what it means too along the way. And you can easily do that in 10 minutes. Well, if you have to give an hour talk, that's, uh, let's see, how many 10-minute talks is that? (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) So you can break down the hour into 10-minute segments and approach academic subjects the same way. So if you have to give a lecture to medical students, you can work your way through subjects very nicely like this. And I had wonderful teachers as examples, starting with uh, Dominic Casulli in high school and uh, Harold W. Brown, who was the uh, man in charge of the Parasite Lab when I first started to work there, and several other people that I uh, took lessons from just by watching. And, you know, imitation is the last form of flattery, but uh, you can't imitate a great person, but you can emulate their attitude.
0: Yeah, for sure. And their
2: attitude was, I want to know what you're doing. You know, you already know what I've done but I wanna know what you're doing because I might learn something. They were very humble people in that sense. So humility is a big part of teaching because you shouldn't overteach. And one of the things that teachers tend to do is they tend to talk about things they don't know about. <laughs>
0: that is true. And they
2: don't say they don't know about them. They just talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then someone comes little later and says, by the way, the next time you say that, why don't you use this? <laughs> yeah, That's happened to me a couple of times, but not too many. I'd much rather say, I don't know, but I'll let you know tomorrow. That's the best approach.
0: So in in addition to teaching, you conducted research for 27 years with continuous funding by the NIH, which is really impressive. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It allowed you to study Trichinella spiralis, one of the world's largest intracellular parasites. And you described it as the worm that would be a virus. Right. So unlike many such organisms, however, it does not kill the host cell, but induces modifications in cell structure that enhance its own survival. So first of all, I'm curious as to what drew you to be interested in Trichinella spiralis, and can you describe the ways in which the parasite uses the cell for its own benefits?
2: I'd be happy to. I was attracted to Trichinella because it was offered as one of the examples of a parasite life cycle in a course called, of all things, Parasite Life Cycles. That was given while I was a master's student at Columbia following uh, my experience in the laboratory as a diagnostic technician. And the man who offered this course, Alan Yurinsky, had just gotten out of his PhD program at the University of North Carolina with a man named John Larsh, and he did his research on trichinella. And that laboratory in North Carolina was famous for the work on trichinella that came out. And and by the way, this is not a trivial disease if you look back in history in the United States. At one point, let's say during the late 40s and early 1950s, if you did an autopsy survey of diaphragmatic tissue of people who died from all causes and just asked whether or not they also had trichinella in their muscle tissue, over 40% of the diaphragms were positive. That's a huge number to think about because you don't usually die from this infection unless you are overwhelmingly infected. So it's a parasite that develops a relationship with its host. And its job, mainly, if you look at the evolution of this parasite, is to keep the host alive long enough so that they will move away from the original source of the infection and transmit this to another group of animals that perhaps live miles away or even hundreds of miles away if you're a polar bear, for instance. It's a parasite that infects virtually every mammal on the planet. Uh, it's not host-specific in that sense. And, and and even some of the species that have now been discovered infect birds. But at th- the point that I was introduced to this parasite, I didn't know that. What Alan Yurinsky did for us was to uh, show us how to handle the infection in the laboratory and then say, you know, this is a very interesting parasite because even though we've been working on it a long time, we still don't know. And then he started to tick off the things that we didn't know. Well, I mean, that's an open door, isn't it?
0: So is this why you decided to continue Trichinella once you arrived at Notre Dame?
2: When it came time to choose a PhD project, when I got to Notre Dame, I was already familiar with the life cycle of this parasite. And so why would I want to work on something else when here it was laid out in front of me. All I had to do was apply my knowledge of how to handle this parasite and work in animals that didn't have any bacteria because at Notre Dame they had something called the germ-free animal research laboratory. And here was a really an interesting opportunity to see what the effects of a single parasitic worm infection might have on an animal that is not infected with any other microbe. And so I started out And that was my Ph.D. thesis problem. And the very first time I tried to approach it, of course, I uh, ran into some problems. One is, how do you get the worms inside the isolator without contaminating the isolator? Ah, that's an interesting question, right? In fact, how do you get the worms anyway? And you get them by digesting them out of the muscle tissue of the infected mouse. The mouse is gone, and the only thing that remains are bones, which don't digest in pepsin and hydrochloric acid, and the worms, which are totally resistant to digestion in pepsin and hydrochloric acid. Okay. So then you can easily get rid of bone and just keep the larvae. And so what I did was I passaged them by sedimentation through a series of sterile saline solutions. The worms are quite dense and they will settle into the bottom of a tube, let's say a 50 mil tube. It would take maybe a minute and a half or two minutes for all the worms to end up at the bottom. And hope Fully, I would say to myself, none of those worms have bacteria on their surface. Well, that's an easy thing to find out, too, because at the end of the passage, let's say, of 10 tubes worth or 5 tubes worth, you could take those worms and put them on a Petri dish and just try to culture them and see whether or not a microbe grew up. And indeed, they didn't. So I passage the worms (laughs) into the isolator. I then infected the mice, and none of the mice became contaminated with bacteria, and they essentially all became infected with trichinella. And then, as a control, I took the worms back out of the isolator, and you can do this sterilely, so there's there's a little port that you uh, put them inside of, and then close it and then you open it from the outside and uh, you can prevent things from going into the isolator that way. Then I took those same worms that I had infected the the germ-free mice and I infected 20 conventional mice or just normal mice. And then I waited 30 days and then I took each of those mice and I scanned and eviscerated them, ground them up, put them into their separate little batches of pepsin and hydrochloric acid. And then overnight the carcass was digested and the worms remained. And then I could count how many worms were in each mouse. Sounds simple, right? So the, uh, the the mice, the conventional mice had, I can just give you some random numbers here, but let's just say they had 20,000, 22,000, 23,000, 25,000, 13,000, 19,000, 15,000. That's sort of the range that you would get if you tried to give each mouse around 200 as an oral dose of trichinella. Now, you, you do the same thing with the germ-free mice and you start looking for the results. First flask, no worms. Second flask, 200,000 worms, the next flask, 40,000 worms, the next flask, 10 worms, the next flask. In other words, it was all over the map, and every single mouse got exactly the same infection dose. I thought germ-free mice were supposed to be more homogeneous than mice living in the real world, and it turned out to be just the opposite. In fact, it turns out The trichinella actually needs microbes in order to complete its life cycle, unless the host is at a certain stage in its life cycle. And by that I mean whether the enzymes in the stomach are active, whether, you know, a whole bunch of physiological parameters, which each mouse may be different in. But with the conventional animals, every mouse is about the same because they've got the microbes to even things out. And we now know about the microbiome and we know how important it is. And so here was a problem, and I, I, We didn't know about the microbiome then. And my thesis advisor says, well, (laughs) I think you should develop another project because you could be here for a long time trying to figure out why these mice were not infected the same way as the conventional counterparts. And so I changed direction and I started to work on the antigens of the parasite itself and to see which ones caused protection. And I stayed with that subject for quite a while throughout my research, but I eventually became interested in the basic biology of this muscle phase. And that still haunts me. I, I still wish I could go back in the lab and do more work on it.
1: StemTalk is an educational service of the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition a not-for-profit research lab pioneering groundbreaking technologies aimed at leveraging and extending human cognition, perception, locomotion, and resilience.
0: So in 1998, you wrote an article for Parasitology Today about the nurse cell parasite complex of Trichinella paralis and how it isn't like anything else that's in nature. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: I would love to. <laughs> how much time have you got? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can, I can wax poetic on this one for a long time because we still need to know a whole bunch of things. But let's just make it, uh, I'll give you the summary first. And that is that the life cycle of this parasite is quite complicated. You swallow the worm as an infection in the muscle tissue of a host, and that's how people acquire it. They eat it either eat raw or undercooked meat of various kinds. And then the worm is um, released from the muscle tissue by the stomach acid, the hydrochloric acid and pepsin, and the worm itself now travels to the small intestine where it undergoes four molts, and all nematodes undergo four molts, and then they become an adult. Uh, one of the mo- one of the uh, genetic organisms that's very popular now in uh, laboratories is called C. elegans, or C. elegans. It's a nematode that lives in soil, and it eats bacteria. That's that's it does not. A, it's not a parasite, but it's a nematode, and it's got almost the same number of genes as Trichinella, uh, but it's not a parasite. So there's got to be some basic differences there, and there are. But but if you know what the life cycle of C. elegans is, then you also know the basic steps that Trichinella goes through as well. So then it becomes a wor- an adult worm, and they mate in the gut tract itself. And the female worm then starts to produce offspring about five days later. Now, they're called newborn larvae. They're not called muscle larvae yet. They're called newborns. And these newborn larvae are born in the gut tract, in the tissue of the gut tract, I should say, and they penetrate into the villus. And in the villus, you have a, a lymphatic vessel and a blood vessel. And these little Son of a guns, they can select either the lymphatic vessel or the blood vessel, it doesn't matter because eventually they'll end up in the heart. And once they're in the heart, they're mixed with blood and lymph and then they're thrown out into the general circulation. And What they're really doing is looking for a muscle cell, although they don't look for the muscle cell, they're carried to the muscle cell by the blood. But they're also carried to brain tissue and they're carried to the kidneys and they're carried to the liver, they're carried to heart, which is a different kind of muscle than the one they're, they're uh, going to infect. But they will penetrate out of the capillary into that tissue to find out if they're near the muscle. And they have a way of knowing only after they get out of the capillary. Well, that's too bad because once they leave the capillary, if they're in the brain, for instance, and if enough of them get into brain tissue, you can actually die of central nervous system failure. If enough of them get out into the heart, which is not the right kind of muscle for them, it's cardiac muscle, they can actually damage the heart to the extent that the parasite will kill the host. Its job, however, evolutionarily speaking, is not to kill the host because if it kills the host at that point, it can't be transmitted to another animal.
0: So what does this end up doing?
2: So basically what it ends up doing, because there's about 40% of your wet weight as strided skeletal muscle, it ends up in a capillary bed of a strided skeletal muscle. It penetrates out of that capillary, and it does so by an enzymatic process and a little spear that it's got in its uh, mouth that it pokes the hole into the membrane first with, and then the enzymes come out and help with the digestion of the tissue, it now gets into a, a fiber of the striated skeletal muscle. It's about a, a tenth of the diameter of an average muscle fiber, a, st- a striated skeletal muscle fiber. And so it's quite comfortable in the middle of this muscle fiber, but some strange things happen then. The worm then squirts in to that milieu a variety of proteins that it has stored up in some secretory granules that it has created for itself during embryogenesis. And these granules then release their products, and those products start to alter the environment where this worm lives. As it does so, the worm starts to grow. As the worm grows, and by the way, we have no idea of how this worm actually acquires its nutrition. You'd think it would be through its oral cavity, but it's not true. So. We're still missing a lot of information about this worm's biology. And um, it's, it's interesting because it was first discovered in 1835 and we still don't know what it eats, <laughs> which mm. seems weird. We know what C. eats, we know what a lot of other worms eat, but we don't know what Trichinella eats. What we do know, though, is that it grows from about seven microns in diameter and about 30 microns long into a worm that you can actually see with your naked eye. And that all takes about 20 days. And as this worm grows, it differentiates its tissues as well. And it, it, it even gets more complicated because now there are five different cell types that have access to the gut tract of the worm that it can use as a way of getting secretory granule products out of the parasite and into the host cell. And there might be as many as 300 different proteins wow. that this worm can produce. I know, and some of them, and this is the really interesting part, some of them get inside the nuclei of the host cell. And so what we might see here is a way for the worm to communicate with the genome of the host to cause it to overexpress or underexpress proteins and substances which are either beneficial for the life cycle of this parasite or detrimental. And so it produces a number of of proteins, for instance, that inhibit inflammation. Wouldn't you like to have access to one of those proteins if you are suffering from rheumatoid arthritis? And the answer is, of course, Uh, or to keep down inflammation during an infection of various kinds. And it also has proteins which induce host-produced collagen. And host-produced collagen, there are, are, I think, about 30-some-odd different collagens now that have been identified in a mammalian genome. And two of them, collagen type 4 and collagen type 6, are important in the latter stages of the development of this structure that I have referred to as the nurse cell. Why a nurse cell? Because the cell actually nurses the parasite to maturity, to the infectious maturity, I should say. And even one more thing, (laughs) just to add further complication to this, this worm needs to eat and it needs to secrete its waste products into the host, and it needs a way of getting rid of waste and acquiring nutrition. Believe it or not, it does so by attracting vessels, these are host vessels, to the nurse cell, and they surround the outer coating, which is this collagen type four and type six complex, and these vessels lie very close to the surface of that nurse cell larva complex. Now, what kind of vessels? We have lots of choices here, right? You could have capillaries, you can have arterioles, you can have venules, you can have arteries, you can have veins, or you can have sinusoids. And most people look at me when I say that and say, what is a sinusoid? And I say, well, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, the pancreas will not be able to secrete insulin into the host's bloodstream unless it's surrounded by sinusoidal vessels, because sinusoidal vessels are leaky and they allow things to get out, which then puts them into the circulation. And that's how hormones in the endocrine system communicate with the host. This parasite has induced a complex of sinusoidal vessels, I should say, which are leaky enough to allow the influx of nutrition like amino acids and glucose and things like this, small molecules, and the exit of waste products that the worm produces as a result of its own anaerobic metabolism. Bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. So that's, yeah. No one would believe
1: it if you just said, well, uh, this is going to be uh, in, in <laughs> a science right. fiction movie or something. Exactly right. The invasion of the body snatchers. Nobody's yeah, was like, yeah.
2: <laughs> The other thing is that that's if you funny. look for an equivalent in nature for other similar parasitic behaviors, there aren't any.
1: Yeah. That,
2: I'm not so surprised.
1: It, it makes you wonder how this even evolved to begin with. Mm. Yeah, this, and, this kind of thing often... Puts that thought in my head.
2: <laughs> yeah. uh, me too. I mean, I, I I totally agree with you. And uh, if you if you now look in na- 1835, the original discovery was in England. That was Trichinella spiralis, and the man mm-hmm. who named it. Was Richard Owen, who you may know from uh, Darwin. <laughs> yeah, He was the big opposer of Darwinian theory and uh, was accused of uh, altering the brain of a gorilla to prove that the gorilla brain is different from a human brain. And he lost his job as a result of that. But he also discovered things like dinosaurs and, you know, and trichonella. Mm, he was a, dis- a co-discoverer of trichonella. Yeah. So since then, there have been eight more species discovered by just looking around the world for them. Mm.
1: Speaking of amazing parasites, we recently interviewed Emma Wilson for STEM Talk Ah. episode number 93. And uh, as you know, Emma has spent more than 15 years studying uh, Toxoplasma Gandhi. Sure. You have described Toxoplasma Gandhi as the most successful of all parasites, or certainly among the most successful. Can you talk about this and explain to the listeners what is so special about T. Gandhi?
2: Right. Well, I think the people who work on it are also asking that same question. (laughs) I'm fortunate in that I have a a good friend who I've been in contact with off and on over the last 25 years. His name is John Boothroyd. And uh, John, if you look him up in the literature, you'll see that he's made major contributions to our understanding of the intracellular aspects of Toxoplasma gondii and its host cell. In fact, we have a lot more in common than is obvious because T. gondii also produces some proteins Mm -hmm. that get inside the nucleus of the host cell. So here we have two parasites, completely different origins, that have similar strategies for achieving a balance between themselves and their invaded cell. So what makes T. gondii so special is the fact that there are no host cell restrictions on its ability to infect, there are no receptor molecules that would restrict this parasite to, let's say, macrophages or to muscle cells or to brain cells. They can penetrate every cell, and they can infect every cell, and they can replicate in every cell, which makes them unique in that sense. I don't know any virus infection that can do that. I don't know, there are certainly no worm infections that do that. So I, right away, it becomes a, the most versatile parasite with regards to cell specificity. The other thing, of course, is like trichinella, it's acquired by the eating of raw or undercooked meat, which happens to be the uh, most common strategy for obtaining nutrition by most of the mammals that live out in the real world, except for the predators, of course, which which hunt those carcasses down. But after they're fed upon, let's say, by the leopard and their family, and the hyenas get access to the bones, but they leave a little scrap here and there, and the vultures move in and finish off the tissues, there's still some left. Of course there is. And then the hyenas come in, and there's a whole succession of scavengers that come in on a carcass. And before you know it, there's no more carcass. It's all been divvied up. So... Toxoplasma has the option of in these what they're called pseudocysts in brain tissue and in muscle tissue of everything except cats, and we'll get to that in a minute. Those animals, in other words, every other animal, can potentially harbor this infection. So any mammal carcass is fair game with regards to the transmission of toxo from one organism to another. And that makes it a universal parasite. If you look around the world, there isn't one place on the planet that doesn't have a toxoplasma life cycle going on. And I'm amazed at the um, universality of the biology of toxoplasma. Mm. So I I just call it the world's greatest parasite. (laughs) Is it even
1: uh, active in places with very cold temperatures? You know, I I understand that 40 degrees is enough to destroy toxo. Uh, Uh, That's true. So a place like Antarctica.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think if the carcass becomes frozen, then probably you're right, it's destroyed. But uh, that's not true for trichinella, by the way. Hmm. And it's possible that it's not true for toxoplasma either because animals that live in the Arctic, or Antarctic, but mostly Arctic, have in their biology a molecule that actually prevents their own flesh from freezing when it gets down below zero. Um, And so these antifreeze molecules are very important not only for the survival of the host, but also for their parasites.
1: Yeah. In Antarctica, there's slim pickings to find a mammal there other than us. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. This is very true. (laughs) And we don't (laughs) have that. (laughs) The
2: orcas, but uh, they're living offshore. That's right.
1: In fact, um, just recently, researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison have discovered why cats are the definitive host of this parasite. And uh, I think you just talked about this like last week or something on TWIP. Can you briefly uh, bring the listener up to speed on this?
2: Sure. Uh, There are two fatty acids that are absolutely essential for most mammals in order to... um It's like a vitamin that you need. You can't live without uh, linoleic acid and oleic acid. Linoleic acid turns out to be a growth factor for toxoplasma in order to produce oocysts. Now. When I say oocysts, I mean a stage of their infection, which emanates from the intestinal tissue, comes out into the lumen, and can be excreted with feces and will survive in the environment for quite some time. It's a thick-walled, infectious stage of the parasite, which I think most pregnant women have heard about because they were advised by their doctors, if they had, if they went to the right medical schools,
0: <laughs>
2: that um, you shouldn't handle the cat litter while you're pregnant because you might contaminate yourself with the oocysts of toxoplasma. And if you become infected during the first or second trimester of your pregnancy, you run the risk of transmitting the infection to your fetus with devastating results. And so she goes home immediately and tells her husband, from now until we deliver our child, your job is to clean the cat litter. (laughs) So um, the, the cat becomes a target for trying to prevent this infection from spreading from animal to animal via that mechanism, okay? The cat, it turns out, all cats, you know, like lions and tigers and cheetahs, panthers of all kinds, and certainly the domestic cat as well, all of the cats seem to have this one thing in common. They're missing an enzyme which breaks down linoleic acid. And in order to break down linoleic acid to the next step, of whatever you need it for, and mostly it's to produce something called arachidonic acid, which then goes on to produce these acosinoids, and all of the acosinoids are important with regards to immune inflammation mediators. The cats can't do that. They don't have the right en- they don't have the right enzyme, so they can't break it down. So it accumulates. So they have higher levels of linoleic acid than the rest of the uh, a- animal world. As a the result, they can also foster the growth of the uh, sexual stages. They then did some experiments in mice, which have very low levels of uh, linoleic acid. So they knocked out the enzyme which breaks it down, and now they can cause a mouse to become a cat simply by (laughs) preventing it from uh, breaking down and allowing it to accumulate higher levels of uh, linoleic acid, if they do that, the mouse can now produce oocysts as well from its infection. So that's good because the NIH has banned the use of cats in experimental toxoplasma infections, at least in the national laboratories. And that was done by, um, I guess, listening to the Cat Lovers Association of America. Um, oh boy and, and there are many of them and they responded uh, and saying, okay 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 we we won't use cats anymore but now they don't have to now it's like you know, nobody cares about the mice apparently but uh, they do care about the cats <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot I, more to that story well, than I, I'm letting I was on say,
0: I agree with that as a cat owner <laughs> but that's a whole other aside so right exactly uh, yeah, Clean everybody else's definitely wash my hands after I clean the cat box <laughs> and, and, and
1: clean it frequently
0: infrequently <laughs> yeah. so you say well how
2: as a domestic cat that doesn't go out of the house, how do they catch toxoplasma? How could they possibly catch it? You see your cat when you start to prepare the evening meal, and they jump up on the table with you, right? And you're making hamburger and or some other meat product, and you're putting it together, and there's a little scrap, and you just put it down for the cat here. Here, you can have your share, too. And a lot of people get involved in feeding their cats little scraps of meat from their own uh, meals, and that's how domestic cats become infected.
0: So another research interest of yours has been the ecotone, which is a transition area between two biomes and is a zone of high disease transmission that leads to the spread of schistosomiasis, malaria, and a variety of parasitic worms. Can you talk about this research?
2: Sure. Well, an ecotone, I didn't coin that expression. It was done back in the 50s. And if I'm not mistaken, it was by the group at the University of Georgia with uh, Eugene Odom. Eugene Odom was one of our great scientists uh, and almost single-handedly invented modern ecology. He chose to work at the University of Georgia for an interesting reason. And that is that the, uh, in Savannah, Georgia, they had one of the first nuclear uh, power plants. And it was leaking radioactive material into the environment. Sounds like a horrible thing, right? Unless you're an ecologist, and if you want to know where nitrogen goes during the food chain or food webs, or you want to know where carbon goes, or you want to know where calcium goes, just go down to Savannah, Georgia, and you can find out where those radioactive materials end up because you can trace them. How interesting. How very interesting. So he chose to work there because it was a natural laboratory. And um, along the way, of course, he discovered lots of things. And simply by paying attention to the numbers of species that are present, let's say, in a forest or in a grasslands, and there are tons of grasslands down in Georgia, uh, mostly along the coasts, there are salt marshes, and he studied them extensively, he came up with this concept that when two completely different um, ecosystems are at odds with each other and they're competing for the space and sometimes the weather favors one or the other, Uh, it creates a conflict zone and in that conflict zone are species that are not found in either the forest or the grasslands but rather at the interface between these two zones and so you can you can understand that i thought it might happen the hedgerows of england uh, are basically the same these are the dividing points between a farmer's land and the and the roads and when you look for species diversity you go in the woods and you find so many bird species and you go in the grasslands and you find so many out in the fields but if you go at the junction between those two in the hedgerows, you find birds that are there that are in abundance and are taking advantage of this conflict because there's a lot of food to be had as these two ecosystems begin to fight with each other for space and resources. The same is true for the vectors that transmit infections. And you mentioned schistosomiasis and the snail, the aquatic snail is one of those, uh, not a vector, it's an intermediate host, but it also is very important in the life cycle of this parasite. And it's found in rivers, and rivers are natural dividers of two regions. And so the the zone that comes up to the riverbank on both sides is equivalent in many ways to the Mm ecotone of, let's say, a forest to a grasslands, for instance. And if you look to see where mosquitoes breed, and of course there are many thousands of species of mosquitoes, but very few are actually important in the transmission of malaria throughout the world, and you look to see where they are, they benefit mostly from damaged ecosystems by anthropogenic Changes that occur when somebody builds a road or somebody establishes a settlement or develops a farm by cutting down the forest in the general area of where they're living. And when you look at all those human activities that create these zones between, let's say, one side of the Amazon (laughs) jungle and the other side in the Brazilian jungle, you look at the Trans American uh, Highway that was built uh, from the port city of Rio, all the way out to Brasilia in order to connect those two points, the building of that road created an enormous ecotone between the right half and the left half of the jungle that they had to cut through. Every time they built a little bit more of that road, they discovered another species of leishmaniasis that was affecting some animals that were living, you know, by being able to, of course, freely cross between those two areas because there was no road. Now they're cut off. Who suffers? The workmen. They were the ones that got nailed by the, the Lutzomyia flies that carried the Lushmania. And there's a, a species of Leishmania named after virtually every South and Central American country, <laughs> and subspecies of each of those, too. So we discover things by disturbing nature, and we, we disturb it by creating these ecotones.
1: That's fascinating. You know, you've been doing research on parasitism for a long time. You must have collected some quite amazing stories And uh, I'm told that one of your favorite stories is about the prevalence of hookworm in the American South following the Civil War. And this this sounds really interesting. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Well,
2: this is a secondhand story. I have to confess that I have a resource that uh, is absolutely astounding in, in the name of Dr. Peter Hotez. Dr. Peter Hotez is the dean of the School of Public Health at Baylor University. And is a good friend of mine and also is one of the authors on our book called Parasitic Diseases, now in its seventh edition. Peter and I have had many occasions to sit down and, you know, just trade stories, etc. And I just sit and listen to him. He just, he's uh, a wealth of information. He also has the advantage of the fact that while he was a graduate student at Rockefeller University, he became a friend of Norman Stahl. Now, who is Norman Stahl? If you go back into the history of hookworm disease, and I'm going to do that, Norman Stoll played a central role in identifying uh, certain aspects of the biology of of Nicator Americanus, which is uh, the American killer. That's what that word means. And it was discovered by accident, totally by accident, following the end of the Civil War. You know, it was a horrible war where what, 2% of uh, the United States was involved in uh, mortality. People were getting sick from all kinds of things. There were outbreaks of cholera and malaria and and something else. And so this something else, uh, we even had uh, elephantiasis in this country at one point. And most of those exotic infections were brought in via the slave trade. So you imagine taking people from West Africa and transporting them to uh, the United States, primarily through Charleston. And they're carrying with them uh, the malaria parasites, of course. They're carrying with them schistosmiasis. Uh, schistosomiasis. Fortunately, we don't have the right snails in this country, so we didn't establish the life cycle for that one. But we had hookworm, and we had ascaris, and we had trichuris, and we had other, what they called geohelminths, meaning that you catch these infections with fecally contaminated soil. And the soil might get into your food. It might get into your water. And you have the option of becoming infected with uh, one of those three main parasites. And I'll just throw Strongyloides stercoralis in there as well. Hookworm was an interesting parasite because the only people that ever heard of hookworm were people in Europe who had done most of their investigation work in Egypt. And Artholos was one of those people who was studying the life cycle of this now exotic worm. He was a student of some German parasitologists, and they all became famous for discovering things that were essential for our knowledge, and we acknowledge that now as the base for parasitology, basically. So Loos discovered how how this parasite actually gets into you. You don't get it by swallowing it. You get it by just contact. And he accidentally infected himself in the laboratory while he was trying to infect some guinea pigs with some hookworm that he derived from a patient. And the next day, he had this itch on the back of his hand where the drop fell, and he remembered the event. And he then waited about a month and then started to look in his own stool for the eggs of this (laughs) parasite. And lo and behold, there they were. So Arthur Lowes is given credit for discovering that hookworm, at least, completes its life cycle by penetrating the unbroken skin. Now, that's something that's very difficult to prevent. Because if you don't know it, and people run around barefoot and all the little kids, they're, they haven't got any clothes on, they just sit down on the ground, it's easy to see how this parasite could be transmitted without anybody being aware of the fact that there it is. So the next event that really riveted uh, the life cycle of this parasite in the history of infectious diseases was the building of the St. Goddard's Tunnel, which connected Italy to Switzerland. This tunnel was, I believe it was five miles long, but it uh, you're, you're, you're pressing my memory on this one. It's, it's a long tunnel. It's so long that as you start to drill through this mountain, and you're an Italian worker, of course, you're you're drilling into the mountain. And uh, we've got dynamite now. We've, we've got this wonderful tool for actually blasting through the rock coming out of Sweden from Alfred Nobel. And now we have a way of, of using it to alter the environment to our benefit. And so we're going to build this tunnel. Well, as they did, of course, the uh, Italian workers, just like everybody else, defecated, of course. And so where would you defecate? Well, if the tunnel is only a half a mile long, you might be tempted to walk outside. You can walk out of the tunnel and uh, do your business someplace, then come back in the tunnel. When you get past a mile or two miles into this tunnel, uh, you're not going to walk two miles out just to defecate. So you defecate inside the tunnel. Nobody's going to see you anyway. There's no light except for where the torches are. And so people began to use the tunnel as their bathroom. That's too bad because uh, a lot of the people living in Italy had this parasite. They didn't have it to the extent that it accumulated inside this tunnel, though, because people began to die from overwhelming bloody diarrhea, which you would call dysentery. But in this case, the blood was from the leakage of the bite wound that the worm makes in your gut tract. And there was a doctor, Dr. Dubini, who was called in to investigate, what, why are these people dying? We had over 300 people die. And fortunately, he was familiar with this parasite because he had read some of the early literature, especially the ones by Arthralose, that said, I know a parasite that can penetrate the unbroken skin and it can cause disease. And here was Dubini, the doctor, assigned to these poor, unfortunate Italian tunnel workers who were dying from this infection as well. So he published a paper on it. That paper should have gotten lost in the literature, right, because it was an Italian and, you know, it was only related to this one incident. But somebody in the United States, a man by the name of Stiles, picked up on that paper as a way of trying to address the issue raised by um, the senior Rockefeller. How come the South hasn't recovered from our horrible civil war? So Rockefeller decides to form this commission. And on this commission, this guy, Stiles, of course, is one of them. But there are many others, too, and there's a very, very accurate record of all of this. In fact, it's all kept under a lock and key down at the Rockefeller Foundation, but it's it's online. You can actually read all the original literature here.
1: Well, that's really fascinating. As I understand it, Rockefeller and others have thought they noticed a certain kind of malaise throughout the South in the years after the war. In many ways, this is completely understandable. The commission you mentioned was comprised of luminaries across many disciplines. They carefully examined possible causes ranging from spiritual to social to psychological to medical. So could you elaborate on this interesting episode in American history? And explain how it connects to the saga of the Italian tunnel workers you described earlier. Every
2: time they investigated it, no matter where they went in the South and where it was prevalent, they scratched their head. They said, the only thing we can seem to find the physician indicates that all these people are anemic. They're anemic. Stiles says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I I know this paper. This paper it was published in Italian. It's written by this guy, Dubini. It says that you can actually get sick from this parasite. It causes anemia, and it, it all it has to do is penetrate your skin. I said, maybe that's what these people have. We should go back and look for that. And so Rockefeller, he listened to him, because there was a minister that was in this commission as well, and he advised Rockefeller, this man knows what he's talking about, and if we haven't found the cause yet, it's worth going back and, and forming another commission. So Rockefeller disbanded the original commission and renamed it the Rockefeller Medical Commission. And they went back, and they tried to find this parasite, and lo and behold, they did. They found that a lot of the people that were suffering from anemia were also harboring the adult worms of hookworm. And at that point, they thought it was all Encelostoma duodenale, which is the European and African version of this parasite. But as it turns out, Nicator americanus, which they had to rename it because that's all they found in the New World, was also present in Africa, of course, because that's where it had to come from. So now there are two species that can cause this the American killer and duodenale. Then they began to put two and two together and they would. Well, how can we possibly combat this infection? We don't have any drugs that will affect this parasite, but wait a minute, it penetrates the unbroken skin. What if we prevent people from coming in contact with this parasite? How can we do that? Uh, That's where Norman Stoll comes in. Norman Stoll said, well, let's find out how far away from the original defecation event these parasites can move. Can they actually uh, crawl in soil? can they do that? And and nobody else knew because people said, oh, I would never go over there to defecate because that's where everybody else goes. I only go over here, but I still caught it. So they set up some experiments, very elegant experiments, but very simple experiments with with, with sandboxes where they would put a pile of infected feces in the middle and the sandbox would be like uh, 10 feet in diameter. And they would start taking samples away from the stool that they would put in the middle of the sandbox. <laughs> you could imagine going home at night and your wife says well how did it go at the sandbox today well you know we, <laughs> you know, we found 10 uh, parasites 2 feet away from the original uh, or that sort of thing so what they found was that when the eggs hatch and the larvae come out the larvae then molt until they get to be third-stage worms, and that's the infectious stage for people, and that's when they start to migrate in the soil. That takes two days to, to work. So then after two days, they begin to find worms a foot away from the original fecal mass that they put into the sand. And then on the third day, uh, fourth day, rather, they found them another foot away, and on the fifth day, another foot away, and on the sixth day, another foot away. So they traveled four feet away from the original stool sample in the six days that they were doing their experiments. But after that, the worms stopped. They would not go further than four feet away from the original fecal matter. And as it turns out, it's because they used up all their glycogen. They could still infect you, but they couldn't crawl anymore. They didn't have enough energy for that. Okay, now, now remember, I'm getting all of these stories from Peter Hotes, <laughs> And I'm sitting there, yeah, and, and then what happened? And then what happened? <laughs> you know, perhaps <laughs> you should get him on your show too because he could probably give you some more details of this. But I I just love the essence of the story because there's some very interesting differences between the northern soldiers and the southern soldiers with regards to footwear. And one of the interesting speculations is that The reason why the North actually succeeded at defeating the South was not because they were better soldiers or not because they uh, had a a just and right cause that they could say, at least we're doing it because we were against slavery. That's not the reason. They did it because they were healthier. And a a Northern soldier, their shoes were made out of cow leather. A Southern Confederate soldiers, they were made out of deerskin. And deerskin is very friable. They didn't have any cattle. They had cotton. So they they would shoot a deer, and they would skin it and tan the hide, and then they would make their shoes out of them. Well, that's a friable material that eventually wears out very fast, whereas the northern boots would last a long time.
1: Yeah, it was the industrial base. That's right. uh, Exactly. That won the war. Exactly. And and that includes shoes. (laughs) That's exactly
2: right. So to make a long story even longer, (laughs) the, the, the bottom line, no pun intended, was that the parasites that are deposited cannot travel more than four feet away from the original deposit. So now how you, now? i love to stop at that point at the medical school level and say, okay, anybody here want to win a Nobel Prize, tell me what the invention would be that could take advantage of this worm behavior. And they looked at me like I was... An outhouse? <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, an outhouse. That's exactly right. But it had to be constructed by digging a hole that was six feet deep. Right. And if you dug it four feet deep, that's where you go to catch it. Hmm. And in many places, the soil did not permit these uh, outhouses to be constructed that way. They were hard, the clays were hard-packed clays and it was difficult to dig the holes. Whereas in loamy soils, it was very easy to dig the holes. And of course, that's where most of the hookworm were being transmitted. But still, if you looked at the geographic distribution of hookworm infections throughout the South, it was primarily in the low lands of the loamy, sandy soil type of geology rather than the hard-packed clay. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that I can tell you where a disease is simply by knowing what the soil type is? Uh, yeah. Really? I wonder what other diseases we can do like that. So very shortly after that, the United States Geological Survey was invented and the United States Public Health Service. So two really important things happened as a result of interfering with the life cycle of a parasite that penetrates unbroken skin. Imagine how many other parasites that you're going to cure by simply containing it in an outhouse. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah I, I can tell you that I dug the outhouse hole <laughs> for my my family right. outhouse in in Maine, and it's solid rock.
0: Maine, oh, so that's uh, tough.
1: That's tough. Uh, you know, it's it took me about a week, and wow. I, I thought it was permanently damaged. Uh,
0: <laughs> but you're glad you did it now, smacking a, a,
1: a <laughs> pickaxe into
2: dear. rock. You All might right. might have tried dynamite, actually. <laughs> right. <laughs> Stem talk. Stem, Stem,
0: talk. Talk. Stem, Stem talk. talk. Stem talk. Stem talk. Stem talk. I have to say, Dick is such a great storyteller, and I never knew that parasitism could be so interesting. As you, Ken, pointed out, Dick was an early adopter of science-based podcasts, and our listeners who enjoyed part one of today's interview with Dick should really check out his podcast, This Week in Virology and This Week in Parasitism, otherwise known as TWIP or TWIP. Part two of our interview with Dick focuses on how, after spending 30 years researching parasites, he reinvented himself and wound up writing The Vertical Farm, feeding the world in the 21st century. As we noted earlier, when Dick and his students came up with the idea of growing vegetables in tall buildings nearly 20 years ago, there were no vertical farms in the world, and today there are commercial vertical farms not only throughout the U.S., but also around the world.
1: Dick's story, and the way he reinvented himself, is truly inspiring. I certainly hope that today's reviewer, Doc Hercules, doesn't miss this interview. Dick is not only a great example of reinvention, but also of someone who didn't view his life merely as a career, but rather saw his life as a journey. And as you can tell from listening to Dick today, his life has certainly been an incredible journey.
0: Such a fascinating journey. I wholeheartedly agree. If you enjoyed this episode as much as Ken and I did, we invite you to listen to part two of our interview with Dick and also visit the STEM Talk webpage, where you can find the show notes for this and other episodes, stemtalk.us. This is Don Carnegie signing off for now.
1: And this is Ken Ford saying goodbye until we meet again on STEM Talk.
0: Thank you for listening to STEM Talk. We want this podcast to be discovered by others. So please take a minute to go to iTunes to rate the podcast and perhaps even write a review. More information about this and other episodes can be found at our website, stemtalk.us. There, you can also find more information about the guests we interview.